0: There is none like you, O oh Lord. If we had 10,000 tongues, we could not praise him enough. If we just thought long enough about where he's brought us from, we could not contain ourselves. Bless his holy name. As we continue this morning in our journey through the book of John, the Gospel of John, verse by verse, word by word, we ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning uh, to the 8th chapter of John, verses 12 through 20. That's the 8th chapter of John, verses 12 through 20. And if you found a sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by clearly saying, there is, none like you. there is none like you. Let's try it one more time like we're actually Christian. There is none like you. You know, in the era that we are currently in, We don't need to cower at all. We need to show an unbelieving world that we are the ones with an answer and they are dwelling in a lie. For we are the ones that follow the one who is the light of the world. John chapter 8 verses 12 through 20. And the word of God says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is is true for it is not i alone who judge but i and the father who sent me in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true i am the one who bears witness about myself and my father who sent me bears witness also about me they said to him therefore where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, to hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, even with an estimated 74% of Americans strongly agreeing with this statement that there is only one true God, one who is holy and perfect, and one who created the world, and rules over it today. Out of that same 74%, there's an estimated 65% that either strongly agree or somewhat agree with this assertion that there is no such thing as absolute truth. You know, this word here in the original Greek, the word truth, is "alethos." And it means something that is true. It means loving the truth. It means speaking the truth. And really, when you think about it, all three of these definitions are fully expressed in the very nature of Christ Jesus. John tells us in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. This word authority in the original Greek is the word exousia, and it means having power. It means having ultimate control. It means having your ability to sway things. It means having dominion. John 17, 1 through 2 says it this way. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. You see, both of these words are essential truth and authority when it comes to the proclamation of this message this morning. It, when it comes to the illumination of the fact and the realization that Christ Jesus is the light of the world. Let me give you an example of human authority at work. When Christian heard her, was governor of Massachusetts... He was running hard for his second term in office. And one day, because he was so busy chasing down votes, he didn't have time to have lunch. So he arrived later on that evening at a church barbecue. It was late in the afternoon, and he was famished. So he went over to the serving line, and he held out his plate before the woman serving the chicken. And she put a piece of chicken on his plate, and she turned to the next person, in line the governor said excuse me do you mind if i have another piece of chicken the woman said sorry i'm supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person the governor said but miss i am starved i haven't i didn't have lunch at all the woman said i'm sorry it's only one to a customer Now, the governor was known as a very modest and unassuming man. But during this particular incident, he wanted to throw his weight around a little bit. So he looked at the woman sternly and said, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. And she replied, do you know who I am? I'm the woman in charge of giving out the chicken. Move along, sir. You see, all authority is not ordained authority, but Jesus has all authority in his hand because he is the light of the world. Would you pray with me this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the very meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are my Lord and my Redeemer. So Lord, today... Show us that your son and our savior is the light of the world. That he is the one who is able to give us life and he is the one who is able to bring light to that life. A light that each and every one of us has been called to follow and to serve. Oh father please direct us on the path that you have led. A path that we might find rest for our weary souls, a path that is not the broad path, a path that we will find righteousness. Lord, lift us up and show us the light of your truth daily in our lives and eternally when we live before you. We ask all of this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, and all God's children said, Amen, Amen. And one more time for the Holy Ghost. Amen. In our time together this morning, we're going to discuss the subject of Christ Jesus being the light of the world. And this is only part one of this message. We start this morning in John chapter 8, verse 12, where it says this And again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am. The light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you remember where we left off last week, and if you assume with many of the Bible scholars, and you had an ESV in front of you, and you recognize that uh, from chapter 753 all the way to 811. In the book of John, it's bracketed because they're saying that this was not in the original manuscript. Then you will understand why we start off this morning in verse 12 with the single word uh, Poland, which means again, because really this picks back up back in John 7, 37 through 39, so it's picking back up because John is continuing to talk to us about the Feast of Tabernacle. Look at John 7, 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, Jesus is saying this about the spirit that they were soon to receive, yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. It was well known throughout Jerusalem from anyone who had attended uh, this Feast of the Tabernacle that at the last night they would have this ecstasy this water drawing ceremony uh, that if you had never seen it would be the joy of your life there was an extravagant claim here made by Jesus which is only an apt description of what was going on physically before them the people would come out and they would light these huge there are four huge lamps in the temple court, the court of women, and they would have this incredible celebration that took place under that light. There would be men of great piety and men of good works that would dance throughout the night, burning torches in their hands and singing and giving praises unto a holy God. The Levitical orchestras would cut loose and some of them would attest to the fact that this was the greatest night of the feast where they would see a light shining all around the temple a light that set glow in Jerusalem and now Jesus Christ comes out and tells them I know that is a marvelous light I know you are incredibly uh, impressed with that light but what you need to recognize I am the light of the world This is the second of the seven I am statements in John's gospel. Here we have the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ, the one that we've already learned that he was the life of man. He's the only person who can give us life and then he would be able to bring light into our lives. And when you think about this light metaphor and you think this is just something that Jesus was talking about but no this light metaphor goes all through the old testament there are illusions everywhere we see the very glory and the presence of god that is held for the people in a cloud the shekinah glory over the promised land we see that in exodus 13 21 through 22 and then we see that same cloud that would be their protection and would destroy their enemies exodus 14 19 through 25 what did the Israelites do they would sing this song that came out of psalm 27 and 1 the Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear the Lord is the stronghold of my life of whom shall I be afraid The word of God and the law of God is a light unto our path. We treasure the instructions that this light gives us. God's light is shed abroad in Ezekiel 1 and 14. And then we see here, God speaks about it in Habakkuk 3, 3 through 4. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Perrin. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled or veiled his power. What does Isaiah tell us? Isaiah tells us in Isaiah forty nine and six that this Lord has appointed as a light to the Gentiles, God's salvation to the very ends of the earth. And then we even see this in Es in our eschatological age when we look at Revelation. Revelation 21, 23 to 24. Look what he says speaking of Jesus. And the city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and is its lamp. Its lamp is the what? The lamb. By its light will shine the nation, and the kings of the earth will be brought into glory. Zechariah 14, 5 through 7. I think this is especially significant because they will repeat this passage at the end of the Feast of Tabernacle. Look at verse 5. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. There was a valley here that provided an escape for the inhabitants of Jerusalem so they could get to Azale. It was an unknown location. It provided a direct access road for the divine warrior to return to his city. Then when we look at 5B of Zechariah 14... Then the Lord will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold or frost. Now, we are at a loss here because it's hard for us to determine what period of time that they're indicating here. This remarkable prophecy really stands out in the entire chapter. We don't know whether it's a future time or present time. We don't know whether it speaks about the millennial kingdom. We don't know whether it speaks about our rebellion. We just know, as we see clearly in verse 7, that it is a unique day. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening there shall be a light. There's a transformation here. I want you to understand how unique this day is. It's almost like going back to Genesis because the day is kind of like the first day of history because there's no light or darkness. It hadn't been separated like you saw in Genesis 1, 3 through 4. On this day, there shall only be an evening time where we should see the light and this light is focusing toward Jesus Christ who is to come. So, as they burned these great lights at the Feast of Tabernacle and resonated with all the consummate glory that is coming with Jesus, John wanted to point out to everyone that when you're looking at light, Jesus Christ is the only true light. So, Pastor, what does it mean when Jesus says, I am the light of the world? Jesus is pointing to his unique divine identity his unique purpose he is declaring to himself before all that he is a light of the world he's claiming to have or to be the exclusive source of spiritual life for everyone who would come to him you know there's two types of light in this world we can perceive one or both or sometimes we don't perceive either We're born into this world and we perceive physical light. And by it we learn of our creator's handiwork and all the things that he has done. However, good that light might be, there is yet another light. That light is the son of God, the one that has declared here in verse 12 that he's a light of the world. Those, those of us who are able to perceive that true light, we're given a promise, we will never walk in spiritual darkness. You know, wherever there is light, my friends, it always dispels darkness. Likewise here the light of Jesus Christ taken into the darkness of our soul where that sin dwells that engulfs our hearts and our lives for everyone who's not following him it changes and drives away dispels that darkness and if we don't follow him we will never have this light we will never understand real truth we will never have Eternal life. Yeah, physical light is important. A forest full of trees with their thick canopies and foliage would be pitch black without that sun above it. You know, plants are phototropic. They are drawn to the light. And really, we, if we're in Christ Jesus, we're drawn to his spiritual light because we need that light to live it's a good test for our standing in Christ whether you are coming closer to him or whether you find yourself fleeing from him whether you are seeking more fellowship with him more time in his word because the unbeliever will always go in the opposite direction and you know why Because light exposes darkness and evil. And John tells us earlier in chapter 3 that those who are unbelievers, they hate the light because they do not want to be exposed. And then there's a promise explicit in John John 8 and 12 here. First it says, if you recognize that Jesus is the light of the world then you will never walk in darkness. That means that we have the assurance of salvation that we will enjoy. If we are true followers of the light of this world, we will never follow the ways of sin. Yeah, we will stumble into sin because we're sinners, but we will not pitch a tent and dwell in sin. The second promise that we will reflect the light that we are following. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house in the same way Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works. Now watch this. They see your good works and they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Never try to stand in the way of God's glory. Be someone that reflects the glory of God, the light that he has put into your life. Because we as believers are little lights to an unbelieving world. We're the one who is supposed to show an unbelieving world through our unbelieving world through our good deeds how faith and discipline and trust works in the life of someone who wants to honor God. We should be trustworthy, sincere, earnest, and honest in all that we do. We should always be ready to give an account of the hope that we have. Do not cower in front of anyone who does not believe in the Holy One. But tell them the reason for your hope. So that they might benefit from it. So that they might be drawn to walk away from that darkness. We recognize that the end of this feast where they had this powerful light ceremony, this powerful water ceremony, that Jesus comes in with this stunning claim that he is the light of the world. And he's asking those, if you follow me, you will never walk in darkness. Psalm 36 and 9 says, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, We see light. We recognize here that Jesus has strategically placed these statements in the book of John in this eighth chapter. He's going to further give us an illustration later on in the book of John chapter 9, where he shows this claim to be the light of the world through a blind man that was blind from birth but because of him obtain his sight we see here the very truthful witness and the authority of Jesus Christ that light itself has the ability to be a witness for itself Jesus reminds us he's the light of the world and that his testimony is true Look at verses 13 and 14. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You see, the Pharisees sought to challenge Jesus here. They start to say to him, you're just boasting because you're, you're boasting about yourself and your testimony is not valid. Now, they're thinking from a legal format here. Uh, they recognize that the law of Moses required two people to attest in capital cases and in legal uh, proceedings, But this is not a legal proceeding. And Jesus is saying, even if it is, I have two witnesses that are verifying my testimony. I verified and the Father God who sent me verifies it. John 5 and 31 says it this way. If I alone bear witness about myself. My testimony is not true. Now what Jesus is saying here is that it's not true from your legal perspective, from the way that you are understanding it. But if you understood what I was really saying, that I am saying I am emphatic in my self-disclosure because Everything you see my father do, you see me do also. I don't do anything that my father has not shown me. My father is always with me. And whenever we testify, we both testify. So we meet any requirement you could possibly put upon us. He's saying, I'm offering a true testimony about myself. And it's because of my unique origin and my unique destiny. You don't know where I came from. That's my origin. And you don't know where I'm going. That's my destination. I am the light of the world. Then he goes on and says, not only is my testament or testimony true, my judgment is true. Look at verses 15 through 17. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people... It's true. We understand here that these Pharisees are judging Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the Son of God, by human standards. They're judging him according to the flesh. I mean, nothing else could be worse than probably judging him by, Paul speaks of mere appearances, They're resorting to the base criteria of human flesh. Fallen flesh. The fallen flesh of mankind in a fallen world without compelling control of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells them about flesh and what flesh is worth in John 3, 5 through 6. Look what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I said to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. They see him only in the flesh. They never contemplate what John tells us back in chapter 1, the fourth verse That this is the word of God made flesh. Jesus Christ is the word of God made flesh. He's the word incarnate. The way that they are weighing him. They've set him in a criteria that is much too low. Is in a worldly and from a worldly point of view. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. You see, when Jesus speaks, and this is another misunderstanding from the Pharisees' perspective, when Jesus speaks of the fact that I judge no one, He's kind of changing this verb, kreno, into meaning passing judgment or really assessing judgment to really observing something. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't judge in a judging sense, and we'll see that a little later. But what Jesus is trying to show them, I don't judge. The way you judge people from a very superficial manner. I don't spend my time marking people up and marking people down. That's not the sense in which I came. I came to save the lost. I knew they were lost before I got here. I came to guarantee that humanity would have another chance. Let's look at a better explanation of that. Look at John for a moment. John 9, 39 through 41. John 9, 39 through 41. For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see and those who do not may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you said, We see, your guilt remains. See, Jesus is saying, I came into the world that those who do not see, I can help them. And those who are blind, I can help them. But those who consider themselves poss- uh, able to save themselves, that they know exactly the, another way to a holy God that requires them to work their way to God versus to find God through faith in me. Those who say that they can see, those are the ones who are truly blind. And because you, Pharisees, you, Sadducees, you, the Sanhedrin, said and proclaimed that you can see and you understand what God requires, you are blind and your guilt remains. If you had just been spiritually blind, then you would have been safe. But you have created your own blindness because you've put something between you and God. You see, the Son of Man is given a unique authority to judge. He has been given authority by God the Father to execute judgment fully, precisely on earth because of who he is. No one else has this ability. And every judgment that he makes is a just judgment. Why? Because Jesus seeks not his only will, but the will of the Father. And because he only seeks the will of the Father, that he stays in the center of his Father's will, all of his knowledge is true as well. This Greek word for knowledge, gnosis or gnosko, means that you have knowledge via first. Can experience. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says it this way. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphant processional, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Jesus is chastising the Jewish leadership here because they're making the wrong claims about him. Why? Because they have no true knowledge of him. They don't even know where he's from, and they have no idea where he's going. This Jesus, he tells them that he is bearing witness about himself. I am the one, verses 18 through 20, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one... Think about this one statement. This had to be extremely offensive to them. You know, all the way through John, they've been trying to arrest him, right? But it tells you clearly here, no one arrested him because his hour has not yet come. Go back in John, go back to um, chapter 5, verses 19 through 29 for just a moment. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 29. Let's try to do this quickly. Verse. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing, On his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So, what is Jesus' claim here? That I follow my father. That I'm equal to my father. That we are both divine. That yes, we function in different roles, but we always function together. I am subject to the father in everything that he does. But that does not deny our fundamental equality. I follow my father As you should follow your father in what he teaches you. The very activities of the day. I do everything that I do to please my father. That I'm never outside of his will. Look at verses 20 through 21. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him All that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. You see, the Father has given Jesus what elder rice was talking about early in his prayer he was talking about the power of being and the power of being is called asceticity which means i don't need anything outside of myself to exist i am god all by myself i don't have a start date i don't have an end date i'm eternal I'm not depending on your actions to glorify me to exist. You should glorify me because of all I've already done for you, saving you like snatching a branch out of the fire because everyone under the sound of my voice had a date with hell. He says, the Father is showing me and the Father has given me purpose, In every event in life, greater works I will do. He raised me from the dead, but I'm able to give you life and life abundantly. He's telling us here that the son gives life. This is another claim to deity, guys, because Everybody knew from the Old Testament only God had the power to give life. This life is both new. This life is a forgiven life. Look at verses 22 to 25 of chapter 5, 22 through 25. For the Father judges no one but has given all judgment over to the Son that all may honor the Son. Just as they honor the Father. That's why Jesus keeps saying, you don't know my Father because you don't know me. And if you don't know me, you will never know my Father. Because no one can get through to my Father but what? Through me. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him, he will be sent to me and have eternal life. He does not come into judgment. But, now this is important, whoever hears my words, believes those words, will come to me. He doesn't go into judgment, but he's passed from what? Death to life. So before we trusted in Jesus, everybody in here was dead, we were dead men walking. But he has brought us from death to life. It goes on. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and it's now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear him will live. You see, whenever that moment was for each and every one of us, when we heard that still, small voice of God calling us to Jesus Christ to himself we heard it and we went from death to life and we live now and because we've trusted Jesus Christ through faith eternal life the clock starts now it's a yet but not yet proposition we have eternal life now and in this world everybody will expire but it's momentarily It's like walking from here out of the sanctuary. Absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. Immediate. Don't let anybody ever fool you that there is some purgatory, or there is some eternal sleep. The moment your number is up, you're either in the presence of God or you're in the presence of hell. You're either in non-smoking or smoking immediately. It's once for man to die, then the judgment. That's not a bracket in that sentence. It's immediate. Jesus is certain here that his father has given him all authority, all judgment, all knowledge. And that his father, he should be worshipped with the same worship and given the same love as his father. Immediate Eternal life begins immediately. It's partially realized, but for the moment that we're in Jesus Christ, and then we are in Jesus Christ. Verses uh, twenty-six through twenty-nine: For the Father has life in Himself. That's a Saturday. He has being. That's, do you understand? That's why we're called human beings. We're really human becomings. There's only one being because a being doesn't need anything outside of himself for the father has life in himself so he has granted the son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to what? The resurrection of judgment. Guys, get it. Everybody is going to be resurrected, everybody's getting up. The problem is not getting up, the problem is your destination. Clearly, one to the resurrection of life, the other to the resurrection of judgment. That's not a third choice. That's not a place for fifth-sitters here. It's a binary choice. You know, it's kind of like gender used to be. It's a binary choice. And we're not going to be able to change that one. And we're really not able to change the one we're trying to change now. Jesus is saying, the Father has given me all authority. I have the ability to give life just as he has. We see here that Jesus is showing that he is the pre-existent Christ here. And you think about how this had to be incredibly challenging to those Jewish leaders, which didn't have the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament. And they're thinking, well, is this guy just coming here to change everything, to turn us upside down, to give us false teaching? You know, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible is Matthew 5.17, because I think everything hinges on Matthew 5.17. And Jesus clearly says this, don't miss this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. When he says abolish the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets are summarized as the Old Testament, okay? So don't think, I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I am the fulfillment to every to all of the 400 plus prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. I'm coming to show you How to work out everything in the Old Testament. The New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. That's why you need all 66 books. And anyone who tells you that the Old Testament is useless, they are useless. You have to have the Old Testament. He says, I'm one that testifies that all of this is true. It speaks in verse 20 about the fact that he is teaching and speaking in the treasury. Uh, I think this is more of a side that John has given us. I don't think he's saying that the disciples had the ability to go in and out of the treasury of the temple, but he was just in that particular area speaking and preaching on that day. But what I think is important is when it gets to the part that it tells us that no one touched him because his hour had not come. We recognize all the way back in chapter two of this, when Jesus at the wedding, they give out a wine and they can't make it over to the grocery store or the liquor store to get more wine. And she says, and Jesus said, what can I do about this woman? And then she doesn't feel offended. She tells the servants, do whatever he says. And then they fill up the ceremonial water jugs with water and the water turns to wine. He talks about it not being his hour. His hour is when he recognizes that his father who sent him is now going to use him as the redeemer. That his death, burial, and resurrection will be which which will be what saves each and every one of us. His blood shed on that cross. But I think it's incredibly important to see how Peter addresses this in the book of Acts. And we'll close with that. Look how Peter addresses this in the book of Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 33. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 33. Men of Israel. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty words and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Whenever you see in your midst, it means in the middle. In your midst, and you yourselves know this. This is not something, you know, he said, make sure this is not something someone told you, you were there. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Right there, he is saying they did not catch God unaware when they did what they did to Jesus. What he's saying is that the Father God deliberately delivered up Jesus, which is part of his definite plan with full knowledge. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Now watch how the accusation goes toward them. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. You killed him. God raised him up. Why did God raise him up, Pastor? Look what he says. Loosening the pangs of death because it was impossible For him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. Now this is working out some confusion because in this particular psalm uh, they thought they were talking about that David's body would never see corruption. But David's body is still in the grave. It skips there and it starts to talk about not David anymore but the one that will sit on the throne forever like David which is Christ Jesus. Look what it says. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwelled in hope. For you did not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths. Of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him, him Is personal pronoun here is referring to Christ sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne for he saw he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he has not abandoned him to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit he has poured out this that you yourselves are now seeing and the example here that Peter is talking about is what they saw at Pentecost that he's poured out his spirit you know In the Old Testament, people constantly wonder whether the Holy Spirit was present. The Holy Spirit is present all the way back to Genesis, verse 3. But they only had temporary showings of the Holy Spirit in the lives of leaders, uh, in the life of Moses, in the life of Samson, in the life of David. But then, what is the prophecy that's given to John the Baptist? When you see the Holy Spirit come upon someone and remain, that is Jesus. And because Jesus, because we have faith in Jesus Christ, is why the Holy Spirit remains in us. It's why he tells us clearly in John 15, chapters 15 through 16, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I go away, then the helper will come. And the helper will do what? Remind you of everything that I have taught you. The helper will be your advocate. The helper will comfort you. Not this nonsense that people are teaching that the Holy Spirit is here to make you comfortable. The word comfort meant to fortify you, to strengthen you. And it will be with you until the end of the age. That is why Jesus can claim without fear of contradiction that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I will be with you now until the ends of the age. Because the Holy Spirit only testifies about God and Jesus just as Jesus only testified about his father. He is the light of the world. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, write this upon our heart that we will never forsake you. Let us know that you have already sent us every answer to every problem we might ever have. This Jesus that you've already raised from the dead, and because you've raised him, we can be assured that on that great getting up morning, our destination is confirmed. It's to live with you, the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ forever. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. Let us be crucified in Christ. Let us no longer live for ourselves, but live for the one who's given his life for us. Let us turn all things over to him. Let us be completely obedient and let us dwell in the abundant life that he has promised us. It is in the precious name of your son and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, amen.